Welcome to the Vertical Church Podcast. I'm Virgil Sierra, lead pastor of Vertical Church in South Florida, where our aim is to point people up to God, teach them to follow Jesus, and equip them to make a difference. Thanks for connecting with us, and we pray that you are blessed by this message. I'm so excited to preach God's word today. I'm so excited to be in my spiritual home with all of you. Um, I just want to say this. I'm extremely pumped about 2023, and I'm extremely excited about this series and what the Lord's put on my heart uh, for this year for our church. Um, and, and by that, I don't mean that I think everything's going to be easy and fun, because um, that would be a mistake to think that, because we live in a fallen world, where Jesus said in John 16, in this world you will have trouble. But, but, with God on our side, everything is possible. Can I get an Amen. amen. So I am so pumped. I'm so pumped about this year. Um, and, and so much so that, that I'm really kicking it off with, with the heart, one of the biggest things uh, strong on our hearts, just Lane and I as pastors. Um, and the, the new series is entitled True Disciples More Than Just a Christian. All right, if you want to go, if you want to kind of catch a whiff of where we're going, True Disciples More Than Just a Christian. Today I'm going to start off with this message entitled The Cost of Being a Disciple. Um, I specifically prayed this morning for just a special, unique to vertical, powerful anointing of the Holy Spirit for our services today. And I, and I sense that through the time of worship and now in the word, the presence of the Lord is in this place. And, uh, and I just pray that your heart would be fertile soil, that your life would be open to receive everything the Lord has for you today. And I feel a great responsibility as the shepherd of this flock uh, to one day give accounts to the Lord, actually even now give accounts to the Lord for the condition of the flock. And that's why this series is really important to my heart because I care about you. Um, and if you're part of this spiritual family and you're a member of Vertical Church, um, I really love you and care about you. If I don't know you because you're new, if I don't know you well, then I want it, we want to know you here at our church uh, well. Um, and if you're just visiting, we want you to know that if you don't have a spiritual home, there's, there's a place for you here. And if you do have a spiritual home and you're just visiting us, please send a big hug to your pastor and your church family on behalf of us at Vertical Church. Um, I want to start off with an illustration to just kind of share a little bit the heart of where I'm going with this. Um, has anybody ever been to a, to a stadium or arena for a sports game? Anybody? Just raise your hand. Have you ever been there? All right, so l l let's put the atmosphere. Production team, help me put the atmosphere. We've been, we've been here. Anybody like it? It's exciting to be at a game. It's exciting. There's excitement. There's energy. There's passion. Uh, the atmosphere is, is, is fun. Um, the truth is, when you're in an atmosphere like this, the truth is, I mean, the colors and the flags might look different depending on what team you're going for, right? But the truth is, if, uh, if we're in an environment like this, there's all kinds of people in the stands. There's all kinds of people in the stadium and the arena along with you. And, uh, and, and, and here's what I want to do. There's all kinds of people, but they're not all the same, okay? So, so let's start off with this. How many know that there are some true fans? You know what I'm talking about? True fans? All right, let me show you a few examples of true fans. Even when they're tired and sitting. That's a true fan. You know what I'm saying? A true fan, you could, you could tell by, from a mile away he or she is a true fan. Because they're wearing it, they're painted with it, they're carrying it, they're speaking it, they're living it. They're talking about it. Here's another, here's another true fan, right? I, I mean, even, even without the, you don't have to buy the shirt because you can paint the shirt on you. That true fan is completely committed. One more, I think we got one more. I mean, you don't care what people might think or say because you are committed. 
Can everybody say true fan. All right. Then you have regular fans, right? Some of you might say, I'm a regular fan, right, of the Heat or the Dolphins or the Marlins. Let's see a picture of a regular fan. Hey, hey, you got the shirt. You got the jersey. You got the jersey. You might even have your favorite player. You might not know, you know, the middle name of every player on the team. You might not know exactly how many games, you know, are we 50-50 under 500 coming to the playoff, you know. You might not know all those details, but you got the shirt. You got the jersey. Hey, you're a believer. You know, you're, you're not all out, you know, committed, but you're, but you're the regular fan. Now, now there's other categories of people as well. There's also bandwagon fans. You know who bandwagon fan, fans are? Like, like if your team is winning, then they'll go, you go for them. And if not, you go for the other team. Here's, here's an example of bandwagon fans. Like, like, oh, my girlfriend goes for them, so I'll go for them. No. Bandwagon fan is like, we're winning, winning. And then here's another bandwagon fan. They're wearing a Laker jersey in one, and then wearing the Celtics jersey and the other. That's like literally like, you know, like Judas. Like that's a traitor. If you talk to a Lakers fan, right, and if you talk to a Celtics fan, right, bandwagon fans, they just, they just try to look the part, but they really, they're just going with the flow. They're really, it's not really deep or committed. Now you have, you have visitors. You have visitors at the game, right? And you might have been a visitor <laughs> at the game that you went to. A visitor is just somebody who come, but they're not, they're not necessarily they're not invested. They're going to sleep fine no matter what happens in the game, you know. They're not going to, you know, they're not going to be losing too much sleep or too worried. They're just visiting. They may or may not come again, you know. They'll watch. They're just visiting. Um, then something interesting. You remember the true fans? Well, true fans have friends. So sometimes there's friends of the true fans. So, for example, here's a picture. Like, there's true fans, and then the friends came. Hey, we're not a true fan, but we're there with them, right? There's also family of true fans, family of true fans. So, for example, some of you might know, you know, famously, uh, Spike Lee is a famous true fan of the New York Knicks. We're talking about decades, right? And I'm, I'm assuming, I don't know, that could be his daughter, I don't know, it must be family. And, you know, how many could tell she might not be as true of a fan, right? So family, family members of true fans sometimes know a lot of true fans, but they're not true fans themselves. Does that make sense? But they, but they like to go to the stadium every once in a while and all that. All right. And then you have, you have workers. Workers are the people that are also in the stadium, but they're not there because necessarily they're true fans. They're there because they have a responsibility, or they might make a buck out of it, or there might be something they can get out of it for themselves because, you know, they're going to get paid. And then lastly, you have spectators because they're not really invested. They're just there because somebody said you should go. And, uh, you know, they could, they're thinking about when this is going to end, you know, because i got to go do some things on social media. Um, and also, also might be like, hey, this is a good time for a nap, right? Because I don't really care what's happening on the field or on the court. Um, so, so, all right, we can take the pictures off. So, so here's the interesting thing. In that scenario of, of a stadium or an arena and all these people we talked about, here's what's interesting is that if we asked most of those people, are you a fan of the team? Most of them would say, yeah, I'm a fan, yeah. But the truth is that the degree of commitment is very, there's a very wide disparity from the spectator to the true fan. And, and, but here's the thing. When you ask most of these people, are you a fan? And they say, yeah, I'm a fan. Not only would they say that, but they would believe it. They would say, I'm a fan, and they would believe I'm a fan. To which the true fans would look at a spectator and say, you don't even know the name of two players on the team. And when's the last time you came to a game, home game, you know, for example, you know, oh, five years ago, right? And, and so a true fan clearly can, can spot, I don't know if this person is for real, and then, 
And then a spectator, you know, not as invested can truly tell who are the true fans. Can we agree on that? Now, here at church, it's not much different. And, and, and my heart, please hear my heart behind this. My heart behind this is to, is to allow the Lord to open our eyes to see something that maybe we need to see in ourselves, in each other, in our community, and in the calling he has for us as Christians. He, he, here are three questions. I remember, I remember talking with a friend about this. And here are three questions that la, at the end of last year kind of frustrated me and is the reason why I'm opening up this year with this series. And they sound like similar questions, but all three questions have different answers. And here's the first question. If somebody was to ask me, a friend, Pastor Verge, how many people attended church on Sunday? That's one number, right? Let's just use a round number for ease. Let's just say in our five services, let's say 1,000 people attended church on Sunday. That's one number. Now, somebody asked me, Pastor Verge, how many Christians attended church on Sunday? Do we all agree that that would be a different number? Yeah, that would be a different number. And the truth is, I, can't give, I can give you the first number because we have our ushers who, who help us in the responsibility of counting inside. We have a logistics team that's in charge of making sure our, student, our kids are counted. And we can give you the exact number of how many adults and kids came on Sunday. I can't give you the number of how many Christians came on Sunday. I can't because somebody tell me how we're going to calculate that, right? I'll talk about that in a second. But the truth is, from my experience and from my years of pastoring and leading in the church, I would venture to say if 1,000 attended on Sunday, maybe 600 are Christians. Maybe seven. If it, maybe this is like really good. Six to 700, somewhere in there, maybe. Hopefully. But then there's a third question. Pastor Verge, how many disciples attend church on Sunday? That number would be even lower. And I would venture to say maybe 150. Maybe. This is my, my you know. So, so what's been keeping me up at night as a pastor is how do we close the gap between how many attended and how many disciples? How do we close this gap? Well, the only way we close the gap is studying the true word of God and discussing what's the difference between a believer and a follower. So, so a Christian and a disciple. A Christian is a believer in Jesus. And we want everybody to believe in Jesus. Praise God, yes, and to receive the gift of salvation. But it's one thing to be a believer and it's one thing to be a follower. Are, are you with me? It's, it's one thing to, it's one thing to, to go to the game every once in a while. It's one thing to know a little bit about the players, get excited and woo. It's one thing to be a true fan. It's, it's two different things. And so, we're going to talk a little bit about this. And so here's a good question, and I want you to answer it with your, verbally. I want you to take it in and think about it. Are you a disciple of Jesus? Or are you a Christian? This is the question that I want us to chew on for a few weeks together as a church. Now, you know, one of the things we do here every Sunday, every service, is we do a prayer of faith at the end. Because, because in the Bible, we see that there's a moment where, where a, a person can, can make a profession of faith. We love to give that opportunity. Now, just because somebody says a prayer, does that mean they're saved? These are the hard questions, right? Well, I said a prayer. Yeah, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're saved. Because the truth is, the Bible said, Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit. So what ultimately, through time, tells us if somebody truly is, is saved or not is because we're going to see the fruit of salvation in their life. Is somebody with me? 
So it's hard. It's tricky because we do want people to make a profession of faith. And our prayer is that everybody that does make a profession of faith would take the steps to truly receive by, by grace and through faith the gift of salvation from the Lord. But ultimately, it's going to take some time to see if, if it happened or not. Are you with me? So this is the tricky part, right? And, 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 and again, we do believe that, that there's a beautiful thing in making that decision. We're not here. We are not Calvinist. We are not like only the predestined and pre-elect. doesn't matter what you say or what you do. We actually believe that there's a beauty in the fact that God gave us free will. And yes, God draws us to him. But yes, he's given us the opportunity. And, and Jesus died for the world, right? For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him. And so that's a whole, that's a whole different topic, right? That's a whole different can of worms, which I'm not going to open up. But I will say this. When you're saved... The expectation of a good father like God is that you would grow. And another problem I've encountered, and we're going to talk about this in the second series of the year, which will be emotionally healthy spirituality, is that sometimes there are people who have been a Christian for 20 years, but they're not a 20-year-old Christian. They're a one-year-old Christian 20 times. Because there's a lot of time, but there's no depth. And so, and so I'm, I'm staying up at night thinking, how can we help our church and then people who join our church at whatever level they are, begin to grow and mature spiritually. Because I'm called to be a disciple, not just a Christian. The Christian life is more than just the prayer of faith. It's a lifetime of spiritual growth and maturing. Being a Christian is more than simply praying a prayer and getting fire insurance. <laughs> being a Christian is not only knowing Christ as your friend, but knowing him as your God. And being a Christian is not only knowing Jesus as your Savior, but accepting, accepting him as your Lord. The first one's easy. The latter is difficult. So let's go to two spots in the Bible, and we're going to pray. I want you to go to Matthew 28, put a marker there. Uh, actually, that's where we're going to start off, and then put a marker in Luke 14. And uh, we are a Bible-reading church, and I really, as your pastor, want to encourage, please um, get in the habit of bringing your Bible to church and using it during the week. Something powerful. If you have it on your devices, that's fine. That's great, but I want to encourage you to Get in the habit of knowing how to navigate your Bible. A lot of people know how to press Matthew on your phone, but you don't know how to find it in the book. And it's important. It's important to, to know both. <laughs> um, so, so Luke 14 is going to be our main passage. We're going to start at Matthew 28. And, and let me just say this. Um, these are the last words of Jesus. And you know there's something famous about the last words of someone. Because, like, like Jesus is saying, hey, I've taught you a lot. Here's here's last thing I want to stay fresh on your hearts. And it's connected to what he wants to see in our lives as believers. Matthew 28, verse 16, verse 20. And it says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Because, by the way, it's possible to worship and still doubt sometimes. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Can we pray? Lord, I pray right now <laughs> that your Holy Spirit would be in this place with us right now and that you would speak to our hearts, that our lives, hearts, and minds would be fertile soil, ready and receptive to the seeds of truth from your word that those seeds would grow, flourish, and give much fruit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So does anybody know what this is called here in Matthew 28, 19, and 20? It's called the Great Commission. In other words, 
God has commissioned us. Who, by the way, who? Did he commission unbelievers to this? No, he commissioned, commissioned his believers and followers to what? To the great commission, which is what? Go and do what? Make disciples, baptize them, teach them to obey my word. And by the way, I'm going to be with you. My Holy Spirit's with you. My word is with you. I am with you. And this is the great commission. By the way, this is a high calling. So question, we as Christians who, who, who live for and follow Jesus, what are we called to make? It's not a trick question. According to Matthew 28, 19, what are we called to make? Disciples. Disciples. We're called to make disciples. Now, here's the issue. How do you make a disciple if you are first not a disciple? In other words, before I, make, before I can make a disciple, I have to be a disciple, which means I've been discipled. I, why? Because I can't take a person further than where I've been. So before I can make a disciple, I have to be a disciple, okay? And, and while it is true, I just said a moment ago, while it is true that not every person who makes a profession of faith at one moment necessarily is a Christian, it is equally true that not every Christian is a disciple, so here's a point you can write down if you're taking notes and you want to share it with somebody. Here's a good point. Every disciple is a Christian, but not every Christian is necessarily a disciple. Are you with me? Now, I'm aware I, I kind of pepped myself up in a personal pep rally in the office before I came out because I'm, I'm, I'm aware that this is a low amen type of message because it's hard. So, so anybody who's feeling generous with your amens, help me out today, Okay. And so, you know, the strong amens, you know, like when I say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Amen, right? But then when I say, when I say, I am crucified with Christ, you know, it's like, amen? It's a question mark. Amen? There's three phases in the life of a new Christian or a life who's approaching Christ or a new Christian. Number one, curious. Number two, convinced. And number three, committed. And, uh. And so maybe, maybe you're here, maybe you're curious, which means you're not necessarily yet a believer, but, but you're leaning in. You're coming with whoever's inviting you, or, or maybe something drew, drew you to, to, to connect to church, to a life group, to things of God, and, and so there's curiosity, but there's not necessarily yet convinced. Th then there's a point when, when you're convinced, right? And convinced means you're convinced that Jesus is who he says he is and, and did what the Bible says he did. And that you need him. I'm convinced that I need Jesus. I need a savior. I need forgiveness. And I need him in my life. So that's a very big transition from curious to convinced. Some people are just lost spiritually. <laughs> but then, when you, then you lean in curious. And then curious to convinced is when you accept Jesus, right? But then there's a point where you transition from being convinced to committed. Are you with me? Where it's not about just what I get from God. It's about what did he call me to do? And how did he call me to live? And what are his expectations as far as my life as his follower, and a committed person is, is, you know, goes beyond what a convinced person does, who goes beyond what a curious person does, which is exactly what we see in the stadium. People that are curious, some people that are convinced that's their team, they want it, you know, and some people who are committed, right? So, so, so how do you go from convinced to committed? And that's a good question. Are you a disciple or just a Christian? I want to uh, share this message, Luke 14. Now, I want you in your Bible, go to Luke 14, and, and go to verse 25. Most Bibles have a little subtitle for each section. And I want to hear, if you can just shout out loud a few of the subtitles. What do you see under Luke 14, 25? Anybody? 
The cost of being a disciple. The cost of following Jesus. Anybody else? A different one? Say hello to whoever called and say hello to them. Anybody? Call to follow Christ. Leaving all to follow Christ. You heard that? The cost of following Jesus, the cost of being a disciple, leaving all to follow Christ. All right? You see how there's little amens? Yeah? Yeah. Amen? Amen? So I want to go to this passage that's not necessarily nice and easy. Um, It's a passage where Jesus is brutally honest with us and his disciples then regarding what it takes to be a disciple. And, and so this is the cost of being a disciple. And what Jesus does is he gives us a clear picture of what the expectations are for anyone who wants to be his disciple. Now, now, if I didn't touch anything that I've said yet, and I just started off today's service saying, who wants to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? I, here, most likely I would have seen like this. Amen. Right? Right now it's like a tentative. Maybe amen, pastor. Keep talking. I'll tell you. So, so Luke 14, verse 25, I'm going to kind of pause like in just every little stop along the way to just pull out some things. Luke 14, 25, come on, give somebody a double say, are you ready? Ask them, are you ready? Yeah, you came, baby. You came today, so it's your, you got to listen. Luke 14, 25, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them. He said, okay, just pause. I got to stop there. Who was following Jesus? Who was traveling with him? Large crowds, some versions say multitudes, great crowds of people, right? Why? Because Jesus' popularity had begun to spread. People began to hear about the way this man taught. People began to hear about the miracles he did, the, 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 the loaves and the fish, uh, the, the water, walking on the water, the, the you know, controlling you know, wind and, and, and sea. And like people started hearing about all these things, uh, healings. So there were multitudes of people in the crowd. But not all the people in the multitudes were committed to Jesus. Some were committed. We know of his disciples. They were following out of true devotion. But many in the multitudes were just curious. Curious about what? Well, to see maybe how they could benefit from this next speaking engagement that Jesus had. To see if maybe they were going to get a fish sandwich that day. To see if maybe they were going to see something spectacular. To go to see, what he, see if somebody's going to score a slam dunk or a home run. Curious. The interesting thing in Luke 14 is that Jesus has a huge crowd. There's multitudes, right? Multitudes, big crowd. And you would think that Jesus would want to share a message that would probably promise a life of ease and comfort and convenience. Why? So that people would be happy and then come back next week or next time that he's around. We would think maybe if Jesus thought like we think, if God thought with our thoughts, then, then Jesus, hey, share a really good message, powerful, like really like you can do it and you're beautiful and there's no problems in life. But to our surprise, Jesus doesn't do this. Instead, Jesus is brutally honest and says, if you want to be, because the thing is people are, in essence, they're saying, we want to be with you, man. Why are, why are all the multitudes there? We want to be associated. We want to, we're connected. And Jesus is like, you want to be with me? You want to you want to be with me? All right. Let me, let me bring some clarity to what this is going to take. And throughout the Gospels, we often see there are large crowds around Jesus, but the ones in the crowds weren't always his true devoted disciples. His disciples were in the inner circle, proximity, relationship. Let me, let me say this. Although Jesus loved everyone in the multitudes, he poured his life into his disciples. 
So I want to share with you seven qualities of a true disciple. The notes say six because I picked one out yesterday. Seven qualities of a true disciple. Or you can say six qualities of a true disciple plus one. By the way, Jesus doesn't say these are optional. Um, he basically impl implies these are the prerequisites to be a disciple. Let me just give it to you, number one. Number one, a true disciple loves Jesus more than anyone else. More than anyone else. Where do I get that? Look at verse 26. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Amen? Okay, so the first two words, if anyone, implies this isn't for pastors or spiritual leaders or people who are really profound. This is anybody who wants to be a disciple, if anyone, right? But, but, but Jesus is implying that a true disciple puts God over and above everyone else, even family now, now, let's have a little bit of understanding here. The Bible wasn't written in English. In the original scriptures and in the context of the culture, uh, what Jesus was saying, he was using the method of sharp contrast, and in essence, he's implying that you need to elevate your relationship with him to such a level that it is in a category by itself when compared to your relationship with any other person, including wife or spouse, kids, mother, father, brother, sister, anyone. Your love for God must be so strong and so intense that other loves would almost seem like hatred in comparison to. So Jesus is not saying, you got to hate your mom and dad to love me. That's not what Jesus is saying. What he's trying to say is you have to love me so much that all those other relationships are secondary. Amen? Amen. Jesus explains, you must be willing to be disowned by your family if that's what it takes in order to be his disciple. Because sometimes people won't commit to following Jesus because it will cause conflict in their family. And people want to avoid conflict and friction with their family. So, so, so if you're like me and grew up in a Christian home from when you were little, it's kind of a blessing because you're growing up in an environment where there's Christians around you and your family's Christian, praise Jesus for that. Everybody didn't have that. A lot of you didn't have that. And here's the reality. For me, I didn't have to worry so much about that issue because my close family were already Christian believers. So when I made my decision, my profession of faith, it didn't cause any friction. But my parents, who moved from Columbia to come here, met the Lord truly here, trans transitioned from religion to relationship with Jesus Christ. When they came to Jesus... What happens to a person's life when they come to Jesus? It's transformed. And it, and it might not be from, from, uh, from night to day. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's a process. But what happens is you begin to change. So when, when, when a person becomes a Christian, the way they talk begins to change. The way they, they act, what they watch, what they listen to, what they consume. The, things, the jokes that were funny before aren't that funny anymore because they're actually kind of offensive because the Holy Spirit within me, there's a shock there. It's a different spirit than the spirit that's in the world. So what happens is the Bible talks about that when God comes in, light comes in. Everybody say light. light. And what does light do to darkness? It exposes it. And have you ever been in a dark room and somebody turns on the light? It's kind of like, turn the light off. Because it's, it's almost annoying. 
What? What's all this light? And when you're comfortable in darkness, you don't want people to turn on the light. So here's what happened. happens. Jesus says, I have to come into families and divide them. Not because Jesus wants to divide us, because if, if he doesn't divide it, salvation doesn't come in. So when he divides a family, it's to come in with light, and somebody receives that light. Now the problem is when the rest of the family doesn't want to receive the light. So what happened to my parents is they received Jesus, and their life was transformed. So they no longer were listening to the same music. They no longer were appreciating the same things to look at, listen to, watch. They no longer were, were consuming and living the same type of lifestyle. So they were like, oh, no, no, we don't do that. And so it kind of bothered and rubbed the wrong way the family members. Why? Because, hey, what do you think? You're all special. What do you think? You're all better than us now? It's not we're better, but it's like this is the life we've chosen. So what happens is people are like, I'm so comfortable over here. Why don't you go ahead and keep your light over there? Don't turn it on over here. And so some people are like, ah, I'm not willing to pay that cost. I don't want to have conflict. And Jesus is saying, if you want to be my disciple, you have to love me over everything, over every other relationship. And so, and so that was hard for my parents. And I remember growing up not understanding some things and later understanding some things. We even got legal papers from some family members, kind of like divorce, like we don't want to be family anymore. Like we got that. <laughs> And I'm not saying that that's the case always because you know what? A lot of, those, a lot of family members have come to the Christ throughout the years and the, and the light keeps creeping into darkness, right? And I'm not saying that it has to be that way, but what Jesus is saying is it might be. And if you want to be my disciple, hey, but just before you sign up, before you sign up for the, for the fan club, let me just be straight. Let me be real with you. I don't want that conflict. I don't want that friction. Well, let me tell you that here's a point. If you are a true disciple, not everybody will like you. In fact, you will have people that hate you. There's a whole chapter on that. I think it's John 18. Oh, man. And I'm not saying that that's what we want or that that's what we're looking forward to. What I'm saying, what I'm saying is, Jesus is saying, you want to be a disciple, just know this. Just know this. Praise God that he could come into a family. And, and by the way, <laughs> this is another thing. Don't use your family as an excuse not to serve Jesus. Because I find that happening a lot as well among, among convinced people, not committed people, where we use our family or our kids or our spouses or our parents as an excuse to not serve and not be active in our faith with the Lord. You will either have, here's a good point, you will either have friction with people and harmony with God or harmony with people and friction with God. But you choose. According to the word of God, if you're a friend of the world, you'll be an enemy of God. But if you're a friend of God, you'll be an enemy of the world. Do you understand? Like, do you get it? Do you get it? Like, I hope this is sinking in, like seeping in. It is important to be pensive in a message like this. All right, number two. A true disciple is willing to sacrifice whatever it takes to follow Jesus. Keyword sacrifice. Look at verse 26. We already read it. If anyone comes to me and does not hate, we saw that. And then it says, yes, even their own life. Like you have to hate your own life. Such a person cannot be my disciple. And that doesn't mean you've got to hate your life. What he's saying is a true disciple puts God over everything, including self. You must be willing to sacrifice what you want for what he wants. So many of us have areas that have been easy to surrender to the Lord. But sometimes we have other areas that we're holding on to. We're like, Lord, I'll give you this. Lord, I'll give you that. But don't ask for this. Don't ask for this. Don't, don't ask, don't ask, right? 
And so a true disciple doesn't put, doesn't put uh, restrictions on what God has access to. So many people, many people would rather remain in the multitudes because of fear that if I draw close like a disciple, God might ask something from me that I don't want to give him. Holy Spirit, speak to hearts today. Number three, a true disciple follows Jesus no matter how hard life gets. There's no such thing as a bandwagon disciple. I like him today, but not tomorrow. Follow today, unfollow Jesus tomorrow. Because I don't like that. I don't like that rule. I don't like that, Pastor. I like it better when you talk about rainbows and butterflies. Why are you talking about this? Unfollow. A true disciple follows Jesus no matter how hard life gets. Where do you get it? Verse 27. Check it out. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. It, it, you don't have to go there, but if you go to Luke 9, 30, 37, it actually says, it actually says, he, makes it, he extends it. Jesus says, if you do not deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me, you can't be my disciple. Being a disciple of Jesus doesn't mean you'll have an easy life. In fact, he says, he says, if you want to be my true disciple, you may have to carry your cross and experience some difficulty and some pain along the journey. Pain along the journey. And your life may not always be characterized by pleasure, prosperity, and health. So, so by the way, what, what was a cross for again? Anybody? What was a cross for? Anybody remember? For executing. For killing for putting to death. <laughs> so, so taking up your cross essentially means you have to die to yourself. See how the amens dwindle? You know? Love Jesus, love Jesus, amen. Take up your cross daily, which means die to yourself. So, so, okay, pastor, what does that mean for us today? Take up your cross and dying to yourself means resisting the temptation to do what everybody else does. Do you see why Jesus said, all right, hold up, everybody, because the multitudes were there signing up for the group. I, I want, we're with you, we're with you. He's like, okay, you want to be my disciple? Here's what it takes. Taking up your cross and dying to yourself means, to a single person, it means waiting to have sex until you're married. Because that's what Christ's word teaches. And by the way, it's not because he's trying to keep you from something good. It's because he's trying to protect you from the wrong thing so you can really enjoy the good thing at the right time with the right person. Taking up your cross and dying to yourself means, to a married person, no sex with someone who's not your spouse. And it's, it's sad that I have to make the clarification here. Marriage between one man and one woman. Okay? Taking up your cross and dying to yourself means, when you're at home, there are times where you turn off your devices, you turn off your phone, you turn off the TV, and you pick up the word of God. And you commune with the Savior, with the lover of your soul because you love him and you follow him and you obey his word. Taking up your cross and dying to yourself means, means sometimes praying when you'd rather be sleeping. We're actually in 21 days of prayer, which is interesting. That's an interesting one. That's an interesting one. Taking up your cross and dying to yourself it means forgiving someone who has hurt you deeply, whether you feel like it or not. 
Instead of, I want them to suffer. And I want them to feel some hurt because they've hurt me deeply. Well, taking up your cross and dying to yourself means leaving your comfort zone and engaging somebody with a conversation about Christ and actually sharing your faith. Taking up your cross and dying to yourself means doing what God wants you to do instead of what you feel like doing. But I just feel like this is what I want to do. This is what I want to do. Go ahead and do it, but you ain't no disciple. Taking up your cross and dying to yourself means swallowing your pride. It's going to church even when you don't feel like it. It's growing spiritually and maturing even though it's hard and it hurts sometimes. And some people want to follow Jesus when life is good and when they need help. It's crazy how people run to, not even God, just church sometimes. Because sometimes people kind of connect. But God is God. Somebody passes away, which is hard. And it's it's good to have somewhere to go. But then a few days pass by and then it's like, I forget God. Hard moments in life. And, and so praise God that we have someone to run to. But, but, but don't turn God into a Facebook page that you follow and unfollow. Be a follower. Four, a true disciple pursues relationship, not religion. Which, by the way, the, the key phrase is follow me. So he says take up your cross. It says follow me. Everybody say follow me. Follow me. He says, if you don't follow me, you can't be my disciple. In biblical times, when one person called another to follow him or her, it was an invitation to learn from him. So here's a question. Here's a question. You say you're following Jesus. The question is, are you learning from Jesus? And are you learning from Jesus outside of Sunday when maybe the pastor or a leader feeds you with a message? Are you learning to self-feed? Do you have a relationship with Jesus or are you just a religious person? You know, relationship has to do with learning, growing, reading, studying, trusting, seeking, connecting, while religion has to do with just attending, singing a song, walking through motions, looking the part. A true disciple does not just stay in the crowd and act religious. A true disciple enters into intimate relationship and fellowship with Jesus Christ. Number five, a true disciple values commitment over convenience. Look at verse 28, right there in Luke 14. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower, Jesus says. He kind of goes into a little mini parable here. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay down the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you saying, this person began to build but wasn't able to finish. Pastor, what does that mean? It means that a true disciple considers the cost of the decision of following Jesus from the beginning and makes the decision to follow Jesus out of true commitment, not merely out of convenience, because when a decision is made out of convenience, he or she will just fade away and leave when things get hard. Do you get that example? He said, who's going to, you know, start building without knowing if they have what it takes? Well, Jesus is saying, hey, before you sign up for this club, before you say you want this, before you say, I'm a fan, I mean, I'm a disciple, before you do that, let me just make it clear so that you know from the beginning whether you got what it takes. Because if you're not willing to put it through, then you're not going to want to go halfway. How many people have started building and just left the building and never finished it? Will come to Jesus in a moment, but aren't willing to, to walk it out, to pay what it costs to be a disciple. 
true disciple realizes that there is commitment to what? To spiritual growth and maturity. I'm, I'm committing to not staying where I was or where I am, but to growing. And by the way, growth implies pain. If I want, if I want to grow, that's one thing. Now, if I want to be comfortable, have you ever seen the chart, growth and comfort? There's growth and there's comfort, right? Now, if I want to be comfortable, I'm not going to grow. It's going to cost me growth. I'll be highly comfortable, no growth. Now, if I want to grow, it's going to cost me comfort. It's going to cause me pain. So it's up to you. If you want to stay comfortable, you can be comfortable, but you ain't going to grow. Now, if I want to grow, it's going to, it's going to be uncomfortable, and it's going to cost, but I'm growing, I'm maturing, I'm developing, I'm proceeding, I'm progressing with the Lord. Six. Is everybody okay? Everybody's all right still? Yeah? Any, anybody still want to be a disciple out there? Yeah. yeah. Man, it's so worth it. Six, a true disciple surrenders everything to Jesus. Keyword everything. Second keyword, surrender. Look at verse 33. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. That's a big amen question mark. Those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. So this goes to the principle of Christianity that we are not owners of what we have but rather stewards. I'm not an owner. I'm a steward. Now, does this mean that we can't have anything? No. But you have to surrender your claim to everything you have because it's all his. In recognition that he is the owner and he is in control, not I. Are you with me? So, so check this out. If I, if I needed, if you needed, let's just say you needed something and I helped you out, and I let you use my car for a week. I let you use my car for a week. And I'm entrusting it to you. I'm steward you're stewarding it for me, right? Um, in a week, when I come and ask you for my car, are you going to get upset at me for asking for my car back? No. Why? Whose car is it? It's my car. You were stewarding it. You were using it. You were being, right? But when I ask for you, you're not going to get mad at me. You're not going to be like, I can't believe he's asking for his car back, right? Because it's whose? It's because mine. So when I understand this principle in my walk with God, um, I understand that everything is his. When I understand this principle, tithe has no issue with me because I know that it's all his. So when he asked me to return my tithe to him, I'm not having an issue with that because really I'm just returning to him what he gave me to steward. And all he asked, it's all his, but all he asked me is to give him this as a demonstration of devotion, trustworthiness, faith, and that he is my provider, not myself. I don't get upset at him or the church or the pastor because ultimately it's all his. And so it's yours. It's yours. So I'm not, it doesn't even hurt me. It doesn't even hurt me because I'm just returning what's his. Because it's a principle of I'm a steward, not an owner. This is another one that leaves a lot of people in the multitudes. Because if I get too close, I'm scared of what God's going to ask. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what he asked. Jesus said it. Everything. Those of you who do not give everything you have cannot be my disciples. Everything. Your life, your possessions, your tithe, your underwear. Everything. Is it, is it wrong to have possessions? No. It's wrong if your possessions have you. Is it wrong to have a career? No. But if your career has you, it's a problem. 
And some people sacrifice God's calling on their life in the name of their career. But I'm providing. Yes, you are called to provide for your family, but you are called to love God above everything. So if, if your career is getting in the way of you truly putting God in the first place in front of everybody, including wife, kids, mom and dad, and then there's an issue there, according to God, as far as being a disciple. Now, being a Christian, that's, that's another story, or just being a cur- curious, a curious cat in the crowd. And so, and so this, is, this is deep. This is deep. The only obsession a disciple should have is an obsession for Jesus Christ. Seven, last one. A true disciple must impact their culture. Must impact where they are. Where do we get that verse 34? Jesus says salt is good, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus says here, what good is salt if it's not salty? That's like a Coke without carbonation. Has anybody ever given you a Coke, like a flat? Like, Lord Jesus. That's, that's like an espresso without caffeine. Have you ever heard somebody be like, triple espresso, no caffeine. That's like having a car without an engine. By the way, Jesus also says that we are the salt of the earth, right? Matthew 5, great, the Sermon on the Mount. He calls us salt because there's something that he called us to be on this earth. And then he says, what good is unsalty salt? Do you want to know the point he's making here? Hey, 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 hey. Here's what it is. Here's a good point. What good is a half-hearted Christian? What good is a decaffed disciple? It's no good. You know, in those times, and even to this day, salt, especially in those times, salt was very valuable. Salt was used for seasoning and flavor, and it it changed it for the good. Like the right amount, it changed it for the good. Have you ever had something so bland, and then you put a little bit of salt, and it just changed it? It changed it. We are salt, and we are called to change the culture. We're not to be, we are not to be changed by the culture. Can I, speak to, can I speak to a few younger people as well? We are not supposed to be changed by the culture where we now look, look like that. We are supposed to change the culture because salt seasons, and it creates change for the positive. Also, salt is used as a preservative to preserve foods like meats and to keep things from spoiling. We're called to help keep this world from spoiling. And also something interesting about salt is that salt salt stimulates thirst. And we are called through our lives to stimulate thirst in others for God. That's a great calling that we have. Now here's the interesting thing. If salt wasn't taken care of, it could get contaminated by other minerals or other things, losing its taste and its preserving capabilities, losing its effectiveness. It would lose its usefulness. And Jesus teaches us the same thing can happen to Christians when we're mixed with the things of the world. When we're mixed with the wrong thing, the saltiness is taken right out of us. That's why you have to pay attention to what's the music you're listening to. What are the things you're watching with your eyes? What are the liquids that you're consuming? (laughs) And what do they do to your life? 
how are you how are you guarding and protecting your 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 purity if you're single you're you're remaining pure waiting for marriage for sex like god's time like just the big things and the clear things that are very easy according to the word if we get contaminated we lose our saltiness and what good is salt if it isn't salty what good is a is a half-hearted christian what good is a person who says amen hallelujah and knows the lyrics to the song and puts on the shirt but like the life doesn't outside of sunday and outside of the context it's like what And we don't want to get contaminated by the things in the world around us. When Jesus says you are the salt, he's really saying this. Here it is. Jesus is saying that you are valuable and that your life can and should make a difference. Jesus is saying that you are valuable. That's a good point. And that your life can make a difference. Now you might say as we close up here, well, who can live up to these standards, Pastor? I'm here to say you can. And if you want to be a disciple, you must. But pastor, I can't. To which I would say, no, 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 it's not that you can't, it's that you won't. Because there's a difference between I can't and I won't. Because the truth is, you can. The question is, are you willing? And that's where I say, man, we lean into the Lord. Because God would never call us to a calling that we can't accomplish. He would never call us to go, to live, go, make disciples, baptize them, teach them my word, and I want to be with you. He wouldn't call us to that if we couldn't do it. And so it's not a can, can I do it issue, it's a will I do it issue. Will I make the decision? And by the way, will I make it tomorrow? And then will I make it tomorrow in the morning? And will I make it tomorrow in the afternoon? And then the evening? And then the next day? Because it's a daily decision. Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily. And follow me. Self-denial. Suffering and surrender. So I want to close off Galatians 2.20. Galatians 2.20. Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me the life I now live in the body I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me so the important question of the day am I a true disciple of Jesus Christ who puts him above everyone and everything else, who, seek, who seeks a personal relationship with Jesus and is committed to follow Jesus no matter how hard things get? Or, or am I just another Christian in the crowd? Living an easy, convenient, religious life, expecting God to do everything for me without me necessarily needing to do much for Him. Are you a Christian? Are you a disciple? I've heard it said before, salvation will cost you nothing, but discipleship will cost you everything. <laughs> and it's true because Jesus paid the price for our salvation. So salvation will cost you nothing. But discipleship will cost you everything. So there's a lot of people in the stadium 
Not everybody's a true fan. There's a lot of people who come to church. A lot of people in the multitudes. But Jesus says, if you want to be a true disciple, here's some important things. So keep, keep Luke 14 as a chapter I need to keep coming back to every once in a while to remember. Can I just say one thing? There's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing that happens in your life when you begin to live out like a true disciple. And here it is. We're called to live a dichotomy where I am both a disciple who's being discipled but called to disciple others and make disciples. But you can't, you can't make one until you first are one. And so there's a lot of things we can pray. Some of us need to pray for a desire and a heart to be discipled, which means i got to position myself in place where people can disciple me. By the way, life groups are starting up in February. It's a good place to take some steps towards discipleship and growing and learning and connecting with other believers. Life groups is a great place to do that. You know, we have our growth track, which is a way to start discovering a little bit what God has put in you to grow, mature, take some steps. Man, what has God put in me? What are the giftings he's put in me? We like to put resources in your hands. You have a Bible. You should have a Bible. If you don't, let us know. We'll give you a Bible, our hospitality team. We have these free uh, devotionals, the, the word for you today, daily devos. This is free, by the way. When you go out, there's English, Spanish. Grab a few. If you want one for, to, to gift one, take it. But we just, we want to help you take steps in your journey with the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, right now, um, I specifically pray for every person in this place and connected online. Lord, so many of us that, that know you, Lord, and we believe in you, but today you're nudging us to not just know you, but to actually follow you. You're nudging us to not just, not just say we're Christians, but actually live in, a way, live in a way that shows that we've embraced this calling. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts, even today and this week, helping us understand the calling of the Great Commission which is for all Christians and believers in Jesus Christ. You want us to go and make disciples. And so, Lord, I pray that we would pay attention to Luke 14. Thank you, Jesus, for your clarity. Thank you, Jesus, because even though it sounds like hard, and, 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 and it is, but there's, there's such a satisfying, there's such a satisfying element of being a true disciple <laughs> and fulfilling the calling that you have upon our lives. So help us transition from curious to convinced. Help some of us, others, to transition from convinced to committed. And help us be a church that is constantly helping people at all stages of their spiritual journey take their next step. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thanks for listening to the Vertical Church Podcast. And thank you to all of you who give generously to this ministry. You make this ministry possible. You can always give online by visiting us at verticalchurch.com. And if you enjoyed this message, you can subscribe, rate it, share it with your friends, and you can also share it on social media and tag us at vertical underscore social. Thanks again for listening, and God bless you.